Today's episode will challenge several commonly held assumptions about the future of agriculture. Take regenerative agriculture as one example, which most defined by the ability to improve soil and sequester carbon. But those are outcomes, even byproducts, not the complete definition of regenerative, says John Kempf. It's easy to make the argument that regenerating soil health is the fundamental that underlies all of those pieces, but it, it misses the perspective of regeneration of the larger ecosystem. John is a leading crop health consultant and the founder of Advancing Eco Agriculture. He designs innovative soil and plant management systems to help growers realize the benefits of regenerative transition right away. Every recommendation that we make needs to produce an immediate economic outcome this year, this crop season, not five years down the road. We talk about what it means to be regenerative, the results they've seen from working with over 10,000 farmers across 4 million acres, why they've launched an equity crowdfunding campaign, and how we can all start to look at agricultural problems and solutions through a more regenerative lens. Far too many technology tools help you do the current thing better. They don't help you rethink the fundamentals of the system. Prepare for one of the more thought-provoking conversations I've had in a while with John Kempf from Advancing Eco Agriculture on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, fellow ag nerd. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. Now, before we dive in, I want to thank our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is a company that tells you what you don't want to know. Every three seconds, FarmWave's Harvest Vision system is counting your harvest losses off the header and from the combine and reporting them to you in the cab in real time. Make changes on the fly and watch your loss counts drop without having to stop or do manual harvest loss counts again. Models are currently available in corn and soybeans with several other crops in development for release soon. But don't take my word for it. Listen to an actual FarmWave customer. The system came to me about a week after we had started doing soybeans. I had about 300 acres already through the machine at this point, our combine. And we got into that field and started going and the system started showing you got loss out the back. The The fan was set maybe just a little bit too too fast. It was We went from non-irrigated beans to irrigated beans, so the yield was a little higher. I changed one millimeter on the, the sieve and slowed the fan down 50 RPMs. That immediately changed about four bushel back into the tank and that small little change it changed everything you know i don't know how long i would have run in that field had i not had that and gone i need to make a change join the ranks of farmers deploying harvest vision in their fields to ensure no bushel gets left behind put ai to work on your farm just visit farmwave.io to chat with one of their experts or locate a dealer near you Thank you so much to FarmWave for supporting farm innovation and the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode with John Kempf. I've followed John's work for quite a long time as a listener to his podcast, which is called the Regenerative Agriculture Podcast. His episodes go really deep into the nuances associated with bringing a more biological approach to farming and a more regenerative food system overall. It's really impossible, in my opinion, to listen to one of his episodes without learning something or expanding your thinking in some way. I highly recommend that one to all of you ag nerds out there who also listen to this show. 
Uh, I knew already that he had a successful company in advancing eco-agriculture that offered services and products to commercial scale regenerative farms. And I knew it had been around a long time. So I was intrigued when I heard earlier this month that they were launching an equity crowdfunding campaign on an online platform called WeFunder. And that prompted me to reach out to John to see if he'd join me on the show to uh, talk about some of these issues and share about this fundraise that they're doing, because I was certainly interested in it. Personally, I thought some of you might also be interested in it as well. And I'm sure glad he did, because I got to ask a lot of the questions that have popped into my mind over the years of listening to his podcast. In, in some cases, really fundamental things like how we define regenerative agriculture, because it can be a bit elusive. Uh, what regenerative transition looks like on commercial farms at scale, how he thinks about research in complex biological systems, why they're doing this crowdfunding campaign, who belongs on the Mount Rushmore of regenerative pioneers. That was a fun one. And so much more. I can almost guarantee you that something in here is likely to challenge your own paradigm on food and agriculture. I know that some of it definitely did for me, and I think that's good. I think we should all be stretched and challenged and forced to check our own assumptions from time to time. We do start off a little bit more philosophical, but then I promise we get into several specific examples, followed by the details of his company, their solutions, and how their model is helping to drive this regenerative vision forward. A quick uh, bio on John before we dive in. John Kempf is the founder of Advancing Eco Agriculture, a plant nutrition and biostimulants consulting company. A top expert in the field of biological and regenerative farming, John founded AEA in 2006 to help fellow farmers by providing the education tools and strategies that will have a global effect on the food supply and those who are growing that supply. Through intense study and knowledge gleaned from many industry leaders, John is building a comprehensive systems-based approach to plant nutrition. John comes from an Amish farm in Northeast Ohio, uh, which is where he first in his early experiences uh, started thinking about some of these biological solutions that might work on his own farm. I'll drop you into the conversation here where I asked John to share how he goes about defining this term regenerative agriculture and why he's skeptical about attaching certifications or verification processes to that term. Enjoy this conversation with John Kempf. My personal vision and mission is to have regenerative agriculture become mainstream globally, to have significant adoption, 80% adoption by 2040 is the, the goal that I've stated for myself. And one of the challenges that emerged from the use of organic certification is that it immediately created an in-group and an out-group. And it immediately created an us versus them dynamic. And there were other scenarios and other stuff going on uh, involved in that as well. But having an us versus them dynamic is not healthy and not useful, particularly not if we want to gain significant adoption on a wide scale. So there are arguably some possible advantages to having it be a bit more amorphous and um, being a bit more adaptable and fluid. But as this conversation is evolving, I'm observing people are rapidly defining regenerative agriculture in the context of soil health. We started 20 some years ago, or perhaps longer, with a group of key individuals within the USDA and within NRCS defining what was initially five soil health principles. And then recently they added a sixth one. They're now called the six soil health principles. And then magically, a couple of years ago, these six soil health principles were redefined as the six principles of regenerative agriculture. And this is a very 
short-sighted view from my perspective, and I have a few challenges with it. One is that it places complete responsibility for regeneration on the farmer and places no responsibility on the other stakeholders in the supply chain. So it's again a case of asking farmers to do more and other aspects of the supply chain extracting that value rather than working with growers or benefiting growers for the additional work that they're doing. So that's a fundamental challenge that I see in, in that particular framing. Regeneration at its most fundamental level is about regenerating relationships. At all levels, regenerating relationships between plants and soil microbes, between livestock and the landscape, and it also needs to include regeneration in the relationships in the supply chain and producers. Right now, when you think about regenerating relationships, you're going from A to B. What is A and what is B? A, a what I would call a degraded relationship, is a relationship that is extractive and that is not collaborative. You're trying to seek for yourself as much as you can at the expense of the other. It is a competitive relationship. And that's the type of relationship that exists today between most ag input suppliers and their customers, between offtake uh, and producers. And instead, we need deeply collaborative and synergistic and symbiotic relationships. And what that could look like is instead of General Mills and other large CPG companies requesting that farmers be regenerative certified, instead of regenerative certified farms, we need regenerative certified supply chains. We fundamentally need to regenerate the capacity for stewardship. We need more people who love and care for the land and the landscape. So to have more people in the landscape, you need to be able to support them. You need to be able to pay them well. That means there needs to be a regeneration of rural economies. And so when I think about regeneration, it's really these, these macro pieces. I see regenerative agriculture has the potential to regenerate rural landscapes, rural communities, rural economics, regenerating ecosystems, regenerating public health, and as a part of that, regenerating soil. Now, it's easy to make the argument that regenerating soil health is the fundamental that underlies all of those pieces, and that's true, and that's why it's so seductive, but it, it misses the perspective of regeneration of the larger ecosystem. And it sounds like what you're talking about there is really shared value. I mean, in order to bring more stewards back to the land and to make it more profitable, those, you know, further downstream in the supply chain maybe need to share a little bit more value, you know, upstream to the farmers to incentivize uh, that behavior. Is that right? That's exactly right. It needs to be a symbiotic instead of an extractive relationship. And there are there are a few examples of those types of relationships that I've observed Um Perhaps the, the pinnacle example that really inspired me was uh, as a group of farmers in the Netherlands, vegetable farmers who um, have this relationship with a packing and distribution organization called Bakker and a grocery supply chain that is called Albert Hain. I, I need to uh, do a case study and publish or get the information published on what they are doing. But the short version is that Albert Hain and Bakker and the farmers have a very unique and beautiful relationship. Not a single one of those organizations has salespeople and not a single one has buyers. They have complete price and margin transparency. Every organization sees the books for every other organization in that supply web. And the farmers, the growers, actually set the retail store prices and the sales and the discounts. So this is the, an example of an extraordinarily remarkable symbiotic relationship. And there, I've now observed other types of relationships here in the U.S. just very recently. Citizens of Humanity has developed these types of relationships with growers who 
they are asking to produce regeneratively grown cotton, where they are actually, uh, not only are they paying a premium for the cotton, but they're actually being proactive and investing in the growers and giving them the funds up front to facilitate a transition if that funding is needed. So they have really gone above and beyond in developing these types of symbiotic relationships. It's those types of relationships that need to come out of the supply chain. Yeah, we did. We did an episode on the uh, California Cotton Climate Cotton Coalition. I, there's a lot of C's in there. But anyway, uh, Ken and Michael, who I know has also been on your show, was, was on here talking about that. And it's certainly an interesting concept. And one thing that I wonder is like, how do you make sure that in that situation, you you don't just take the extraction from the farmer and instead put it on the consumer who may or may not have the ability to afford healthy food, you know, healthy food at a, a larger premium than it is today? Uh, how do you make sure that, you know, ends up really being kind of a, a shared fair system? Well, there's an interesting example in France. While it now includes 18 countries in Europe, there's an organization called Blue Blanc Cour. I interviewed Pierre Veil, the founder of the organization, on my podcast. It was a fascinating conversation. Um, the short version is they have conducted extensive medical review testing in human subjects, evaluating the benefits, the human health benefits of high omega-3 content animal products. So they've specifically been uh, measuring milk, meat, beef, pork, and eggs, if I recall correctly. And they were able to demonstrate dramatically improved health response in people. And through a coalition of governments and public intervention, they were able to facilitate an arrangement. Right now, they work with growers to be certified. Their growers are certified under the Blue Blanc Core label, and they are outcome verified. Every batch is measured and tested. And the growers receive a premium for the product that they're producing that is higher quality and has these known health benefits. And the price on the grocery store shelf is the same. It's identical, even though the farmer's receiving a premium because they were able to show and to bring such collective social pressure to bear that the social pressure alone was able to get the retailers and the supply chains to say, we're willing to do our part to bring this to the market and so we're willing to give up the 1% or 2% premium that the producers were getting that they would have attached and pass that all the way through to the producers. So the producers are getting a premium. The retail supply chain is not participating in that premium. Hmm. You see, I mean, this is why I love listening to you and talking to you, because I'm already starting to question the, the inherent assumption that was going to be in my next question, which is like, what's a farmer supposed to do with all this? And I think your first response is, yeah, that's kind of the problem is like we're putting it all on the farmer to do something about exactly. This. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate the perspective. I mean, it's it's sinking in. Um, so it sounds like what we really need is is very, very intentional, facilitated conversations throughout the supply chain to to work together to attack these problems. And, you know, it obviously starts with shared value. But what should those incentives look like back to the farm as far as, you know, kind of farm transformation? You know, we talk a lot about cover crops and kind of, you know, reducing disturbance. But again, it's getting back to soil health principles, not regenerative systems thinking. And so if you are the facilitator coming in with general mills and their farmer suppliers and okay we're willing to all share the value here what types of practical transformations need to start happening well i'm going to answer the question differently than i might have a few years ago and that i believe that in many cases the right answer is not what you need to begin doing there's many of things many things that you can begin doing like incorporating cover crops and 
keeping your soil covered, minimum tillage, using good nutrition, microbial inoculants. There's different things. There's many things you can do. But I'm actually of the persuasion that perhaps one of the most important pieces we need to look at is what are the things we need to stop doing? And uh, I'll give you an example of what I'm thinking about. Uh, first, I'll use an analogy, and then I'll use a couple of ag-specific examples. When you have a person who is not feeling well, they go to a doctor, and the doctor will frequently prescribe some drugs to address whatever symptoms they're experiencing. And over a period of a few months, often side effects will begin emerging, and they'll go back to the doctor, and they'll get a prescription for a second drug to cover up the symptoms of the first. And that cycle repeats itself several times until three or four years down the road, you end up with a person who's taking six or seven drugs who arguably might be better off without any of them. And the point I want to make is that every point in that journey, the doctor never intended harm. He always intended benefit. He always wanted the best thing for his patient. And we have a similar situation in a lot of our agronomy and agricultural management, but the situation has evolved over decades instead of over years where we start doing things and then we add other practices and then we add other practices to cover up the side effects of the initial practices and we end up in this quagmire that when you look at it from a fresh third-party perspective looks really idiotic. It's easier to see others than it is to see ourselves and so I, I can quickly give you two examples of what this might look like. We started working with cotton roughly four years ago and right out of the gate we have no previous agronomic experience working with cotton and we suggested some fairly radical changes and in the first year we get a 60 percent yield response six zero and you go wait what like these guys know nothing about cotton how is that even possible well as it turns out in cotton production, standard practice is to put on roughly 50 units of nitrogen per expected bale target yield. So that usually translates to 150 to 200 units of nitrogen as a standard application. But then with that amount of nitrogen applied, the cotton plant grows really aggressively. It becomes tall and luggy, has wide node spacing, and you can end up with a really poor quality crop. So the solution is to apply plant growth regulators. It's very common for growers to be applying somewhere between 7 to 12 plant growth regulator applications per year. Now, the interesting thing about a PGR application is that a PGR application will completely shut down photosynthesis in that plant for a period of about three days. And then photosynthesis gradually begins recovering until it completely recovers 10 to 14 days after application, at which point, in most cases, a repeat application is now being applied. So you've dramatically suppressed the photosynthesis of that plant. And we look at that from a fresh perspective and you say, wait, what? You're driving with one foot on the accelerator and the second foot on the brake. How much sense does this make? So our recommendation when we started working with growers, many of them uh, initially that we started working with were irrigated. And so being irrigated, they have the capacity to add nitrogen through the growing season as needed. And so we said, okay, we're going to change the game. We're only going to add nitrogen when the crop needs it. And we're going to measure every two weeks of the growing season so we know exactly what's going on. And as a result of that, one change... We reduced nitrogen applications from 150 to 50 pounds. There were zero PGRs applied, not a single application, no fungicides, no insecticides. We reduced potassium applications by 60% and we got a 60% yield increase. Not as a result of doing more things, but as a result of doing fewer of the wrong things. And um, I want to be conscious of time. I have other examples. Apple production in Washington. 
there's this common phenomenon of fruit drop, where as many as 40 to 50% of the fruit will drop off the tree the last four weeks before harvest, or even the last two to three weeks before harvest. This was also a deliberately created situation. Roughly, let's say 30 some years ago, 30, 40 years ago, there was a problem with fruit coloring. And the root cause of the problem that the fruit didn't color well and didn't stay red or didn't turn red was because the soils were no longer able to supply enough cobalt and manganese, which are fundamental for producing good coloring. So the solution, proposed solution, was to put on a foliar spray of abscisic acid about eight weeks before harvest, six to eight weeks in advance. And abscisic acid promotes very good fruit coloring. Abscisic acid originally got its name being associated with abscission because it was thought to cause, and it does cause, fruit drop and, and fruit stem release from the tree. So another effect that increases abscisic acid in a plant is drought stress. Whenever you have drought stress, it'll increase the abscisic acid in a plant by an order of magnitude, 10 to 20x or more. So this practice was first started roughly 30 years ago. Then flash forward another 10 to 15 years, and now a second problem emerges that we have newer genetics, newer varieties that have large cells inside the fruit. And these fruit don't store well. They don't hold well in storage. And the cause of this as a problem, uh, or the, the root cause of the problem, is that we need a lot of calcium and copper to form strong and flexible cell membranes. And... So growers are applying lots of calcium, but then in addition, they arrived at the idea that, okay, the last four weeks before harvest, well, we're going to shut off the irrigation water. We're going to do water deprivation so that we have less water inside the fruit, so that our fruit isn't quite as large, and so that we reduce the fruit storage problems. Well, then they can't figure out why they have 40% fruit drop. It's because A, we're putting on the abscisic acid, and B, we're doing water stress. And so we're creating this high abscisic acid content in the tree and of course the tree is going to drop fruit. So our recommendation when we started working with apples is, first of all, you address the cobalt and manganese, and so you eliminate the first abscisic acid application. And second, uh, you address calcium and copper so you have strong, flexible cell membranes. And then you eliminate water deprivation. All of a sudden, you don't have fruit drop anymore. So I'm using these as examples. I deliberately did not use corn or soybeans or wheat as examples because it's easier for us to see other people than it is to see ourselves. But the reality is that this scenario of doing the wrong things or at the wrong time is almost universal in a lot of our crop management approaches where we're doing the wrong things and we're creating a lot of our own problems. And this gets back to, to a mindset shift that I have benefited from you, uh, which is regeneration is maybe if we're going to create a focal point, it's not going to be soil health. It's not going to be carbon sequestration for sure, but maybe it's going to be plant health and that creating healthy plants creates healthy soils and, and starts to regenerate systems. Uh, and those seem like two good examples. How do we start to see our own blind spots though? Because obviously those farmers, and, and, and like you said, this happens everywhere. Everyone's doing it because they think they need to do it. They, they think it's the right thing to do. It's necessary. How do we start to see our own blind spots in this way? Oh boy, <laughs> um, that's an analogy to the question of uh, what defines open-mindedness and how, how do you say it? Well, it's part of it is exposure and gaining uh, learning ideas from other people, of course, but um, I think fundamentally it is constantly challenging assumptions uh, and asking the question, why exactly are we doing this and is this really the best way to be doing it? And it's you know, there, there is this remarkable phenomena as we started using plant sap analysis and measuring what's going on with crops. 
In many cases, the greatest yield responses that we have gotten have not come from applying more fertilizers or applying different types of trace minerals and so forth, but instead they've come from removing things. Removing potassium applications at the wrong time, removing nitrogen applications at the wrong time. So the most successful growers that I have observed, I've had the privilege of working with thousands of them at this point. The most successful growers do not delegate responsibility for their agronomic decisions to advisors. They hire consultants, they hire agronomists, they, they work with other people to get input, but they're the final decision maker. They do not delegate the knowledge required to make decisions. So the best farmers are the farmers that, if they're an apple grower, they deeply study exactly what is required to produce a high quality apple. What is the cell, what's happening with plant physiology? What does cell division mean? What do all these pieces mean? They don't delegate that knowledge to anyone else. And so there is this uh, pattern that I've noticed where the most successful farmers, both financially, economically successful, but also successful by other metrics in life and family and so forth, are those who prioritize developing a personal understanding of how to increase revenue and they delegate to others how to reduce costs. And I, I point this out because this is in direct contrast to the way regenerative agriculture is so commonly framed. Say, oh, this is a pathway to reducing costs and reducing inputs. That may be true, and that's certainly attractive to some people, but the most successful growers are those who prioritize and understand how can I increase crop revenue and how can I increase profitability? When you focus on it through that lens, reducing costs usually happens, but it's a secondary outcome. It's not a primary outcome. Hmm. And this brings me to another thing I wanted to, to have you talk about, which is, you know, I imagine with the thousands of farmers you've worked with over millions of acres at this point, um, you are convinced, am I right, that, that, you know, applying these regenerative principles to a farm can be a profitable move in, in the vast majority of cases for conventional farmers. I have never seen it not be a profitable move, not once. And the way that I approach this is to say the fundamental foundational principles work. And if for some reason they didn't produce a response in a certain year, then obviously there's all types of environmental factors as well, but there's also the possibility that we missed something or didn't apply something correctly. Again, the thought process when I first started advancing eco-agriculture a decade and a half ago was I had this mission of having regenerative agriculture become mainstream in the next three decades at that point, three and a half decades. And how do we get there? Well, I believe that you achieve what you incentivize. And if you want to provide a pathway to scale, to significant scale, you're not going to get there by having a conversation about future rewards. Many farmers are not in the financial and economic position to say, we're going to make investments this year and next year and the year after that in improving soil health and cover crops and so forth with the hope of seeing a future reward five years down the road. That doesn't work economically for most operations. So in our work, when we started doing our agronomy work, I really prioritized and spent a lot of time studying where are the applications, where are the trigger points where we can put on very targeted applications uh, or targeted management that produces an immediate economic outcome in the first year. I obsess over the idea that every recommendation that we make needs to produce an immediate economic outcome this year, this crop season, not five years down the road. 
I have a couple of presentations on YouTube where uh, I go into some detail on what we've discovered, but the bottom line is there are two areas that are significant wins consistently. The first, uh, the greatest, the single greatest ROI application consistently is a well-designed seed treatment. Seed treatments are inexpensive, they're low cost breaker, and they deliver over and over and over again. When they're well-designed, they're very consistent. If they're not well-designed, then they're highly variable. And the second category comes as a surprise to many people, and that is foliar applications. Well-designed foliar applications also have a consistent ROI. Then side dress, planters applications, all these other types of stuff, those fall down into different categories depending on your specific local context. But when you look at regeneration or facilitating a transition through an economic lens, you make different decisions than those that are often promoted. Cover crops are important for regenerating soil health, but they may not be the most important thing this year, particularly not if I'm under financial duress. In the in the spirit of like this kind of full value chain approach to regenerative agriculture, a lot of people listening are not farmers. They they may be agronomists, they may be you know retailers, they may be others in ag business. It would seem for this transition to really happen at scale, you know, to get to the eighty percent you mentioned earlier, we're going to need people all on the value chain. And and I wonder how does that start to happen where we we have more consultants whose job it is to say facilitate conversations between food companies and you know grain elevators and farmers or somebody who's a crop consultant who's helping with kind of regenerative principles are we starting to see that today and how does that sort of materialize it's certainly it's starting to happen but it's very early days what i find interesting is that there are many um smaller innovative cpg companies in the let's say in the 1 million to 30 million dollar range they're they're starting out they might have a couple years of experience under their belt there must be i'm not exaggerating there must be 200 or more of those companies right now who are actively looking for crops that are regeneratively grown and can't find them because there is no one facilitating those connections there's a lot of interest in having access to high quality ingredients, but it's very difficult, or I shouldn't say it's difficult to facilitate, but there hasn't been a lot of facilitation yet. So that's, that's one example. The, the reality is that what we're describing to some degree requires a, a reconfiguration and a rethinking of financial incentives and the way that they're currently structured in the system. Input suppliers are a good example, uh, or crop consultants. What percentage of crop consultants receive a part of their compensation as a result of product sales? I don't know the exact number, but it's a large number, probably upwards of 80%. So you have this inherent conflict of interest where the consultant's interests are not aligned with the grower's best interest. So there are some of these pieces that need to shift in a macro context for the highest and best good relationships to evolve from that. Right. Well, let's let's talk about advancing eco agriculture. Um, maybe give us a little bit of uh, a, a kind of a high level overview of the company today, and then I, I want to get into where it's going in the future. Today, we're a team of about eighty people working on fifty some crops and about four million acres, mostly here in North America. We're starting to do quite a bit of work in um, in South America and other parts of the globe as well, but mostly North American centric. Uh, we originally started doing a lot of work with fruit and nut and vegetable higher value crops. And uh, more recently, half a dozen years ago, started doing a lot of work with broadacre crops and were surprised to find how little innovation there has been in that space um, compared to some of the higher value crops. Back in 2006, we originally started as a consulting company and then 
shifted to being more of a specialty plant nutrition and microbial inoculants type company. We're now in the process of shifting that again to being, uh, we've always had extremely strong consulting service, but we're now shifting again to be a uh, consulting service centric with the products being associated with that or available on an as needed basis. So yeah, it's, it's quite interesting today, about 4 million acres that we work with and what we really became known for originally in the fruit and vegetable space was the ability to help farmers grow crops that were highly resistant to diseases and insects and virtually eliminate the need for pesticides. Uh, in many cases, entirely eliminate the need for pesticides in a year or two. The interesting piece that happens, of course, is when you increase plant health, you can't stop yields from increasing. They're, that's just going to be a secondary benefit and usually a very significant one. And real quick, if I could just clarify there, when you say eliminate the use of, of pesticides, do you mean insecticides, fungicides, and herbicides? Uh, less so for herbicides, particularly I was referring to uh, fungicides and insecticides, yes. We have a really incredible team, and we're growing quickly, and we have a lot of demand. I mean, it's, it's a great challenge to have, but one of our challenges um, the last couple of years and going forward the next couple of years into the foreseeable future is uh, hang on to the reins because this, uh, this rocket is taking off. It's like there is, there's so much demand. We're, we're in a very fortunate uh, and a lucky position, I suppose you could say, is that at this point, we started in 2006, so we now have 15 years of experience in helping farmers transition to regenerative ag on scale, large operations, thousands or tens of thousands of acre operations. And it's like, who has that track record of success for the last 15 years? Like that just, I'm not aware of anyone else out there that has that. And so we have a lot of demand for that reason. And it's, it's a good position to be in, but it also means we need to scale rapidly, which is, uh, which is exciting and uh, a lot of work. Yeah. And I know in order to scale rapidly, you know, you're, you're currently doing a fundraise through the WeFunder campaign. So that allows anybody who wants to become an investor in advancing EcoAg to do so through that platform. Uh, I guess a couple questions on that. You know, have you raised money in the past and um, whether or not you have, why now are you doing this fundraiser and why through WeFunder? Yeah, we've... Uh grown organically. Uh, we have not raised any outside investment fundraising until very recently. I think we did one small round, I forget, let's say roughly 18 months or maybe two years ago, somewhere in there. So the WeFunder campaign is really the the first significant fundraising round that we're doing. And it's it's actually very meaningful to me because in, in the spirit of regenerating relationships and having aligned interests, I've always asked the question, like for us as an organization, what does it mean to not just do regenerative agriculture, but to be regenerative? What does it mean to be a regenerative organization and to have that baked into our DNA? And I've always had the desire to have uh, employees and customers and our supporters be able to participate in AEA success and to really be partners in our growth. And um, we've explored different options over the years. We've looked at stock options and different things like that, but we've been a relatively small company. And... Uh, this this crowdfunding campaign is an administratively easy way for us to accomplish that and for our growers to be able to participate in our success and for our employees as well. And so that was a major driver um, for going in this direction and choosing to do a crowdfunding campaign versus other types of investment that, quite frankly, probably would have been a lot easier. Sure. Yeah. And obviously you know you're raising this money for growth but but uh, more specifically are there specific initiatives or um investments that you want to make with this money 
There are several. Um, we have some very innovative research and development work that has been ongoing for a couple of years that really needs a significant injection to bring it to the marketplace that is really going to deliver even, we believe, even greater and faster immediate economic responses for crops who are just starting the transition. So we're pretty excited about that. But then the other piece that we're working on is this computational agronomy or algorithmic agronomy. There is something that we have that no one else has. In addition to the level of experience in helping farmers transition, a foundational aspect of our success has been that we don't guess about anything that's possible to measure. We use data extensively. And in terms of how we manage plant nutrition, the one of the ways that that has manifested itself is that we measure the nutrient content of the plant sap every two weeks throughout the entire growing season. So we now have this database with millions of data points on nutritional integrity and nutritional profiles through the growing season. And we can partner that with microbiome data and with all the other types of data that we've collected, irrigation, water data, and soil analysis, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, we now have the ability to very accurately predict disease and insect susceptibility into the future based on a plant's nutritional profile, which means you also know the solution. You know that a crop is susceptible to a specific disease or specific insect because X, Y, or Z nutrients is imbalanced. That means you can correct that imbalance and it changes the conversation. All of a sudden, the solution to a potential pest problem is not a pesticide solution. It's a nutritional solution. So we have some fairly well-developed software technology that we have been using in-house as this predictive engine. This is a personal uh, baby of mine because I, I first formulated the possibility of doing this type of predictive work back in 2014. And uh, to now be at the point where we have the both the technology and the database to be able to do that is really exciting. So I'm looking forward to the day when a grower will be able to get an alert that will tell him, hey, you need to begin scouting your fields for the emergence of this insect that is expected to arrive in the next three to four days. And of your 11 fields, two of them have a high susceptibility rating because of these reasons. They don't have enough magnesium, or they don't have enough molybdenum or whatever the case might be. So um, that's a significant piece that we're hoping to invest in that I'm pretty excited about. And that also, that helps us scale uh, because one of the key challenges is to help a farmer transition. Many people have identified that one of the key pieces that there's a desperate need for is trusted technical advisors people who have the depth and the breadth of knowledge to be confident in facilitating a transition, that people who have already walked the path before. And we have a great team of people like that, but we invest years and a lot of money in training and development before an individual is ready to start making recommendations on their own. That's a scaling problem. And having, having an agronomy computation engine can help solve for that scaling problem by making humans better, not by replacing them, but by making them better. Well, I love that for so many reasons. First of which is, like you mentioned earlier, nobody has the track record that you all do of the years and the millions of acres of, of regenerative transition. Uh, and, and similarly, 
that puts you in a position, a unique position to be the only one developing technologies that come from that context. And, and what I mean by that is, and we, we talk about this in genetics, if we're breeding crops for the current system, are we really optimizing for the right things when it comes to genetics? And of course, that's a whole nother conversation, but similar with, with ag tech tools. If we're developing ag tech around the current system, if the system shifts to a regenerative context, those tools may or may not still be relevant. And I think that's really, really interesting. That's such an important comment, Tim. Uh, I really appreciate you having that perspective because if you develop ag tech tools for the current system, do they just exacerbate the problems that currently exist? For example, is any ag tech tool going to recognize that you're applying too much nitrogen and too many PGRs on cotton? Far too many technology tools help you do the current thing better. They don't help you rethink the fundamentals of the system. And to me, that that is the next wave in ag tech, which we talk about ag tech a lot on this show, is developing tools from this new paradigm. And it's not a new paradigm, but to a lot of us, it's new of, of sort of this regenerative context, I think is super interesting. Along similar lines, you know, you obviously are data driven. You're very scientific in your process. You talk to a lot of scientists. But I've also heard you say that, you know, the scientific method is is maybe not sufficient for biological systems like agriculture. Can you explain that idea? a little bit more and how do you reconcile that in your brain of, of when to really employ the, the scientific method versus when it's inadequate or insufficient? Yeah, that's a real can of worms to open, Tim. That's a real can of worms. I waited until the last 10 minutes to mention that. I know, I'm sorry, but I, I, I would love to kind of just get a better sense of it because I wrestle with that in my mind. I want to be more data-driven, more scientific, but I don't want to lose the imagination it takes to think about what's possible. Right. Well, this is not a fundamental truth, but for entirely too many people, including entirely too many scientists, the scientific method is associated in their mind with single factor analysis, that you change one thing, you move one thing, you either add or, or remove a certain product from a protocol, and you measure the changes that have happened. Problem is that in a biological system, there's fundamentally no such thing as single factor analysis because there's such an intricate web of how uh, the microbiome and how nutrients interact with each other that when you move one thing, you change everything. So what we really need in for this uh, development of a regenerative agriculture system is we need to think about uh, research efforts from a systems research perspective rather than from a product research perspective. And this is, I think, where AEA has been a product company now for a decade, a bit longer. And there has been a proliferation of uh, microbial products and, and biostimulant products in the marketplace over the course of the last four or five years in particular. And that's going to continue to grow. And many of these products are amazing and can do really great things, but they suffer from not being represented in a system. Like you can have the best microbial product in the world. And if you put it into a really challenging context without changing that context around it, you create an environment where that product can't perform well. So I think this is, this is one of the fundamental pieces from a scientific perspective. We need to look at systems research rather than exclusively single factor analysis. And then there's a second thought, which is that anecdotal evidence constitutes evidence. Let's not forget the second word of that phrase. Anecdotal evidence is still evidence. There are far too many cases where growers have tried something and have experienced remarkable successes, 
only to have those cases summarily dismissed because you didn't have multiple plots. You didn't, it, it couldn't be defined as a scientific research project. So I've been intrigued. There's this group of farmers in France who uh, have this collaborative effort. It now includes some over 400 farmers of uh, where they're specifically focusing on cover crop research. And their point is that rather than each individual farm doing three years of research on cover crops on their farm, once they figure out what the it is that they want to research, a specific cover crop combination or following a specific crop sequence, they will test it in one year on 50 farms across the entire geological spectrum across the entire country of France. So they generate a lot of data, but it is whole field data, it's whole farm data, but instead of being plot data and replicated on four plots, instead it's replicated on 40 farms or 50 farms or 100 farms. And so they have accelerated cover crop research to the point where they are now, they started 10 years behind where the innovators were in the US and in North America, and now they're 30 years ahead. No exaggeration, they're 30 years ahead because they have such a blitz effect of rapid innovation and year after year innovation where they very seldom try the same thing two years in a row because they are able to try one thing on so many farms in so many different environments in one year that they're able to make very rapid progress. And so it's it's that type of thinking that we need to think differently about what defines scientific research in order to move more rapidly. Thank you for that. I mean, I wanted to get to that because I think it's super fascinating and uh, and interesting. I love the example there in France. Um, well, I, I've been doing some episodes lately on the history of agriculture. And, and uh, so I wanted to ask you if you could offer some suggestions of people from history that have been, you know, sort of the I don't know, the pioneers, I guess I, I should say pioneers of what we know today as regenerative agriculture. Could you give me some recommendations if you were to kind of build your Mount Rushmore of Regen Ag, uh, you know, who would for sure be on there other than yourself, of course? I don't fit on that list, at least not at my current age. Um, so I think if you go back in history, there are there are many amazing scientists who did groundbreaking work, but there's a few that come to mind. William Albrecht is a good example, University of Missouri, who did, he really established the foundation for our soil testing work that is uh, ubiquitous throughout all of agriculture today. But many people don't realize that his, his original research actually paved the foundation for what we call regenerative agriculture. And there was Charlie Walters, who was the founder of an organization called Acres USA, which published a monthly magazine. It was really Charlie Walters who popularized William Albrecht's work and kept it from being lost in the dustbins of history, along with many other innovators of the time. There's also an individual who is not widely known, um, Joseph Kokenauer, who was, um, I forget Joseph's position, but he was involved, I think, at the government level with agriculture uh, on a state and on a federal level, wrote a lot of interesting books on the relationships between agricultural landscapes and management systems. Uh, there's Sir Albert Howard, who, with what was it called the Soil Foundation or the Soil Society in England back in the early 1900s, who did a lot of innovative work on composting and the function, the role of uh, compost as a an inoculant on soils. There's a number of of scientists that have done really great work going back 40, 60, 100 years ago. Those are a few that come to mind, and there's there's many other recent people as well who have done just incredible work. There, there are three scientists alive today whose work is going to revolutionize the agronomy of tomorrow. They will be the Mount Rushmore of tomorrow. 
Um, those three are Olivier Hussan from France, Dr. James White from Rutgers University, and Dr. Gerald Pollack from Washington State University, or maybe it's Washington University. I forget which of those two. And uh, the combination of those three individuals' work creates the foundation to completely remove agronomy out of the chemistry domain and move it almost exclusively into the biology domain. And that is remarkable. Man, what a great place to end today's conversation. Of course, I have a, a several other cans of worms I'd love to bust open with you, but maybe uh, we can get some more of your time at a later date. I'm sure you're very busy right now with the WeFunder campaign going on. But how long is that going on? How long do people have to contribute? I, I personally would like to contribute, and I, I know other listeners will want to as well. When is that going to close, or does it, is it a matter of when you reach your goal? Uh, it's a matter of when we reach our goal, but I would suggest you don't uh, you don't hesitate too much. We've um, things have slowed down a little bit after the first couple of days, but the what was it? The first forty eight hours, we hit one point two million right out of the gate, and uh, which is pretty remarkable. So I would suggest time is probably not on your side. Okay, we'll double check it on WeFunder, but uh, highly encourage you if you're interested in this work, um, John. Obviously, you know you, you guys are at the forefront of of everything that's happening right now with regenerative agriculture, and I really really do appreciate you being on the show. It's exciting. There's lots of fun stuff happening. Thanks for having me on, Tim. And if anyone wants to learn more, you can always find me on my website at johnkempf.com and a whole bunch of places online. Okay, we will put some of those places that you could find John online in the show notes to today's episode, as well as the AEA website and the link for the WeFunder campaign. Uh, to be transparent with you, I did end up investing a little bit myself. As a disclaimer, though, I will remind you that I'm not a professional investor or advisor, and this is not financial advice in any way. Investing is risky, and always do your own due diligence and consult with professionals before making any financial decisions yourself. But uh, with that disclaimer said, uh, it's a great chance for me to to kind of put my money where my mouth is on this stuff and to be a part of the growth of regenerative agriculture and the work John and his team over at Advancing Eco Ag are doing. So thanks again to John for being on the show and thank you once again to FarmWave for supporting the show as our quarterly presenting sponsor this quarter. If you know anyone who might want to sponsor 2024, I've just opened things up. So please uh, track me down and I'll get you the details on that. And last but not least, thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week week with another story of ag innovation.